tonight in a way that I think will be a blessing to you. We've come to our third chapter in Jeremiah. This chapter is vitally important to comprehend, more so than most people realize. Thankfully, in these last several sessions, you've been acquiring the understanding necessary to be able to grasp this chapter properly. The revelation in Jeremiah 3 is paramount to grasping the larger narrative of God's Word, of God's dealing with Israel, and of God's dealing with all of humanity. We're happy to say that when you leave here this evening, you will be on better footing in your biblical studies. Sadly, because of the importance of this chapter, we'll not be allowed to heavily review our previous weeks tonight. We simply want to reacquaint ourselves with a few of the pictorial concepts that were meant to impact your soul. Let's take that first picture. You remember this picture from week one. You learned that the Hebrew prophets were used by God like spiritual artists to convey a wide array of vivid emotions that was aimed at impacting the souls of those that the prophet encountered so that those people would understand the heart and soul and mind of God about a given subject. During that week, we explored the almond imagery. We did it on three levels, as well as the anticipation that Jeremiah must have felt regarding the way all of the events would unfold. You may remember these words from Jeremiah 1, 9 through 12. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I point you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Amen. Since much of Jeremiah's ministry would be uprooting, tearing down, and destroying, and overthrowing. You'll hear a lot of that in the text as we go. But that's not all that his ministry would be. It would also be building and planting. Praise God for building and planting. The Lord was indeed watching to see that his word was fulfilled in regard to impending judgment. But that is not the only thing his word declared. 
And he was watching to see that his word was fulfilled in its totality. Somebody say totality. Totality. His judgment would be fulfilled and the other things that his word declared, including restoration after the judgment had taken place. You should have walked away from week one knowing that the Lord is a father to Israel and Judah. Should have also walked away from week one knowing that the Lord is a husband to Israel and Judah. The Lord uses the two most powerful relationships that exist in the human structure to describe what he is to Israel and Judah. Now, on that note, it brings us to a picture. This was a disturbing picture from last week, wasn't it? Realizing that it was God's hand on that door, and he was making a discovery. Andrew, you're uh, you're newly engaged as of yeah. about yeah. four hours ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think this picture has a little bit of new meaning to you. We know that this is not going to be your future, but imagine that you are in God's shoes, standing here. That incites an emotional response. We explored the depth the depth of these emotions and pain in this picture, just like. God's artist painting this picture in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 2, God as the husband lays out the case for the severity of his wife's adulteries. The chapter could be summarized by, I have these charges against you. Do you have any valid charges against me? No. No. Tonight, we will move into the sentencing phase. Somebody say sentencing phase. Sentencing phase. The sentencing phase of the judicial proceedings. During the sentencing phase, it is common to talk about mitigating circumstances, relevant circumstances, issues that would call for a reduction or magnification of the severity of the sentence. It gives that person a chance to say, oh, well, I was feeling this way on that day, or there were these extenuating circumstances that caused me to do this. As we get into this crucial chapter, there is one more thing we need to draw your attention to from the first session. So last week we learned about predestination. We learned about how Israel is foreknown. We have a slide for you. And on the slide we went through Romans 8, 28 through 30. This passage, many of you before you got here, you thought this passage was talking about you. You've read books, you've heard other teachers explaining That when the Bible speaks of predestination and people being foreknown, it talks about those who are in Christ. But we learned that after careful examination in the book of Romans, that is not the case. (laughs) Romans 8, 28 through 30 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How many of us have applied that scripture to ourselves? I've done it many times, and I love to do so. But verse 29 gives us a different feel of who this is talking about. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, not stepbrothers, not adopted brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now I said again, Many have trouble understanding who who that's talking about until you read a couple chapters later in Romans 11. He says in verse 1, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means I am a what? I am an Israelite myself. 
a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, Israel, whom he foreknew. That is the answer. When you hear the word Israel, you must determine the time period being spoken about and bear in mind that it may be used connotatively to refer to both Israel and Judah or denotatively to refer to the northern ten tribes. When we hear Israel in this passage, it's going to mean something. When Paul is speaking of Israel as being foreknown, he is using the term connotatively. In other words, he's using the word in an all-inclusive fashion to refer to both houses of Israel, Israel and Judah. You know there was a split. There are two houses, Israel and Judah, but Paul in Romans is using the term all-inclusively together. Israel is the one nation on the planet that God foreknew and predestined to become his bride. All others would be a mysterious inclusion. Now let's take a look at our next slide, and we're going to see a little bit of how we see the basis of Romans 8 in the Torah. So you see, on the slide, we listed them in the same order that Romans 8 does. Abraham is predestined to become a blessing to the whole planet. Genesis 11 and 12 make that very clear. Isaac is the promised son called forth from barrenness to fulfill the promise of Israel. Jacob is the one that is justified by his trust in Adonai and destined to become a prince with God. Joseph is rejected by his brothers, but glorified by God as their savior and the savior of the world. The reason we're bringing this up now is the connotative and denotative sense in which you'll hear the word Israel used tonight. It's much like the Civil War time period. If we're talking about five years in American history, then they are two nations. But all the rest of the time, when we say United States, we mean the North and the South. It's important to understand that both houses of Israel, the Northern and the Southern, descend from the same patriarchs. Both houses of Israel share the same destiny, even if at times they receive different treatment. It's going to become clear to you tonight that God views them as one house, one bride. Even if it takes some considerable time to accomplish that goal, it is what he says will happen. As he mentioned, both houses descend from the patriarchs. They are part of the same nation in God's eyes. Our next slide is about national destinies. It's about retreading all of the ground that we covered in Romans 9. Abraham and Isaac are mentioned, and it is through Isaac that the offspring are reckoned. What that means is out of Abraham's descendants, they are tracing the patriarch from which the nation that Isaac is the head of will be reckoned. Romans 9, 10 through 13, Esau and Jacob are mentioned. One is stated as being the line that the promise would come through in the national destiny of Israel would be through Jacob, not Esau. They were a family. But these two men had different national destinies. They would begin nations. In a similar way, Pharaoh is often mentioned when Egypt is destined to complete certain things like bringing God's people into captivity. He is the head of a nation that has a national destiny. Look, in short, people have choices and nations have destinies. 
There are nations that are destined in biblical prophecy to fulfill certain events, but that does not mean that every individual has to participate in the national destiny of the Antichrist. That nation will perform its function, but people have choices. Look, we want this point to be crystal clear as we continue to work through the prophets. You're going to see destinies of nations outlined, and individuals in those nations will still have choices as to whether or not they want to embrace it or reject it. But finally, remember that God's chosen in Hebrew is equivalent to God's elect in Greek. The one nation that has a specific elect chosen nation is Israel. This will help you hermeneutically as we walk your way through the wedding story that is the Bible, the bride coming to her husband. Take a look at our next slide. So we want to remind you on this topic of election, chosen, the elect. First Chronicles 16 and verse 13 was one of the passages where we made this discovery a couple weeks ago together. It, in the LXX, the Septuagint, which is what we're looking at here, it says, seed of Israel, his servants. So what nation are we talking about here? Israel. 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 Sons of Jacob, his chosen. Now, look at that word chosen there. It's the Greek 1588. Can we have our next slide? 1588, chosen, elect, applies first to Israel. If you go through passages in the Older Testament, you will see in the Septuagint that this word shows up regarding the nation of Israel. Eclectos. It means to choose, to select. Chosen, select. In the group of three important biblical words. Eclectos, ecloge, and eclogi. Now... I did pretty good with that. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was yeah. fantastic. Excellent. That was strong. Choice selection, selection involves thoughtful and deliberate consideration. You're going to see in the Newer Testament now, as we switch over in this next slide, you're going to see how this applies specifically to Israel in the Newer Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but I was taught that when you read the word elect in the Bible, insert your own name into it. That's what I was taught. And that's what I thought for years. But how foundational is it to go back to the Older Testament and see that every word for elect is Israel? Look at the New Testament words. We have three words here, eklego, eklectos, eklogi. Plug in the word Israel every time you see these words when you put it into an Englishman concordance, and you'll get something like this. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. For he elected Israel in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined Israel, Israel to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Man, that fixes a lot of theological problems, doesn't it? Second yeah. Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descendant from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Amen. Therefore... Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, Israel, Israel, because God's word is not chained. His promises is not chained, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Romans 8, 11, 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election, Israel is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. 
Look, when you plug Israel into these passages, it fits every time. When you insert yourself into these passages or any other Gentile nation, it doesn't work and you have to jump over hoops that are problems. Now, now that we've refreshed the necessary building blocks of your revelation, we're prepared to properly, somebody say properly, properly, properly encounter Jeremiah chapter 3 with its connection to the larger scope of the biblical narrative. See, the broad filter helps you understand in narrow sets of circumstances. Most errors in biblical interpretation come from breaking apart one verse at nauseum to make it say something that the rest of the Bible does not say. We're reversing that process, and it's why we spend so much time in the 39 books of the Tanakh, because it is the New Testament Bible. So we're going to hop right in and have Jennifer read the third chapter, and then we'll begin expounding on the third chapter. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you, have you not just called me my father, my friend, from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. During the reign of the king Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all of this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immortality mattered so little to her. Immorality. Immorality mattered so little to her. She defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all of this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all of her heart. But only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. There, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. 
it will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time I will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days the house of Judah will join the house of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. I myself say, said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from, from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so have you been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and the pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people, I will cure you of backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and the mountains is a deception. Surely the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruit of our father's labor, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let us disgrace our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. Well, I am really excited about covering this chapter with you. And I am because I can tell by your lack of reaction that you don't fully understand what's happening. Because if you did, you would have leapt out of your chairs with excitement. <laughs> yeah. Which means there is nowhere to go but up right now. <laughs> Brother Linton, will you pick up verse 1 for us? If a man divorces his wife and leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you not return to me, declares the Lord? Now, there's an obvious point here, but to understand it, we need to re-examine something that was found in the days of Josiah. So why don't we do this? Let's have uh, Boj Erejina read Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. As he reads it, you should be thinking about the context of what we just heard. <clears throat> when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away He's not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So the point here is quite obvious. Judah has been involved in idolatry, spiritual infidelity, and has defiled herself. The defilement is now a barrier to the union. Of God as the husband and Judah as the bride. A barrier that has no resolution within the realm of men. 
But as you'll find out tonight, with God, all things are possible. Amen. Now there's a less obvious point here. Deuteronomy primarily portrays the woman as having been defiled. Well, of course that's true. But Jeremiah actually says the land is completely defiled. Jeremiah is in total agreement with the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. This is an often overlooked detail that we want you to understand. The behavior of the people defiles them, and that defilement defiles the land. This is true because the covenant is with Adonai, the people, and the land. Anything that one party does affects the other two parties. Now this is really significant because God's promises through the Abrahamic covenant, say Abrahamic, Abrahamic. are irrevocable. The nation retains its destiny. But in the Mosaic covenant, when the land is defiled by immorality, then the people must be vomited out. Glenn, why don't you get Leviticus 18, 24 through 28 for me? This is on the subject of the Mosaic law and the stipulations about the land. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited its inhabitants. We're going to pause there and not elaborate much. But there is a three-entity covenant. The Lord Almighty, the people, and the land. This is Moses speaking about the land before they get to it that previously had been defiled and men were thrown out because their defilement had affected the land that belonged to him. Mm-hmm. Keep reading. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So the Lord gives stipulations about remaining in His land that apply to you and to anyone else living with you. Aliens as well as you. Look, we can see something at work here. There's a promise that is given to the patriarchs through the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember our slide from a couple weeks ago, it is a non-negotiable covenant. One that is one-sided, I will do these things. It also happened to come before the Mosaic covenant. It was first. And it is true, and it will always be true, that they will receive this land. And the promises given through Moses, which came later, are true and always will be true. Both covenants are truth, are a reality, and do not bend. Neither is a side set aside for the other one. One does not abrogate one. One does not eliminate one as time goes by. When God says something, it is true for eternity, and both of these covenants are true. When God says something, He means it forever. The beauty of these two complementary... Somebody say complementary. Complementary! These two complementary, successive covenants is that they form a means of course correction. There is a truth, and then there are covenants and things that are laid out that provide course correction for the people of God. 
The national destiny of Judah is to be the bride of God in the land of Israel. But any time that she defiles the land through her own defilement, because they're connected, then the land throws the people out as a form of discipline to ensure that the behavior is corrected. Saints, I want you to catch what I'm saying here for just a minute. They're promised to the land, and they're promised that if you do not obey these things, you will be thrown out of the land. And yet there's always restoration that follows. To be thrown out of the land means that that defilement has an ending point. There is a time where course correction happens for his people that they may be the pure bride that he called them to. He throws the people out as a form of discipline to ensure that their behavior can be corrected and that they arrive at the eventual goal that God has irrevocably said will happen as his bride in his land. As we pick up in verse 2, you've just been given a jewel, and, and, and you need to think through it deeply. We live in a time when people believe one covenant sets aside the next covenant. Come on now. They call them dispensations because they don't understand any of them. What we need you to begin to grasp is what God told the patriarchs is true and will always be true. And what he told Moses is true and will always be true. They function in a symbiotic fashion to make sure that the nation hits the eternal goal. There is a covenant that has temporal consequences that help correct the nation. But both things are true all of the time. There are gods, there are powers, many, who cannot and will not operate like our God does. There are multiple covenants at play here. There are multiple promises at play. And our God is a faithful God who is able to look at all the covenants and all the promises in a holistic fashion and say, yeah, I'm going to stand by everything that I've said up to this point and what I will say, and I'm going to make it work out for those that I have called mine. Wow. Let's continue in verse 2, and we're going to continue to unpack this because as you can see and as you're beginning to see, this chapter is a lot deeper than what initially meets the eye. Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravaged? Wow. By the roadside, you sat watching for lovers. Set like a nomad in the desert. What? Like a what? Like a nomad. nomad. Oh my goodness. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Okay. So verse 2 is the sentencing phase. We're getting into the sentencing phase of the courtroom that God is painting through Jeremiah. Look, to better understand this imagery being conveyed here, Know that the word nomad is really... Does somebody have a footnote in their Bible? Arab. The word nomad here in the Hebrew is the word Arabi. It's number 6163 in the Hebrew. And what we know about the Arabs is that the Arabs are a mixed people group. They're mixed with Ishmael and Esau together as their forefathers. They were men who were outside of the people, the land, and the plan of God. They're outside of those covenants. Moreover, the Arabs were nomads, without connection, without responsibility to the land of the covenant and of the promise. This becomes very important as we unpack this verse, because the point 
that is hitting at our souls from this verse is that Judah, because Judah is the subject here, Judah is not only showing no regard for her husband, but also she is showing no regard for the land of her inheritance with God as her husband. Judah is being compared to this nomadic people called Arab. Look, perhaps the modern equivalent would be a spouse committing adultery in the family home, as opposed to maybe a motel off-site somewhere. Mm. But even that falls short because in this case, the home or land is not just a possession. It is a party in the three-way covenant with God, and all three of those components must be working together. They are inextricably linked together. And when one goes one way, it affects the other two always. Let's, let's pick up in verse 3. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prophet. You refuse to blush, blush with shame. Man, that's strong language, isn't it? Yeah. Look, what's happening here is that Jeremiah is recording God's, uh, God's punishment. God, uh, Jeremiah is recording the charges that God is bringing in a court-like prosecution setting. And he's using the law of God, the Torah, to do it. Somebody read Deuteronomy 11, 16 through 21. Who's got it? I'll read it. Real quick before we turn there. We began by tuning in to God's message and learning a little bit about Jeremiah. Then we moved to chapter 2 when we began to gain God's perspective where he spoke about from the beginning. As we're reading these passages, you're going to hear increasingly... It's no longer a discussion. It's becoming a sentencing. It's becoming his verdict. He's now saying, you are guilty, and this is what I have done as a result of it. With, with nomads that were mentioned earlier, these are people that were near the promise, but were sexually immoral like Esau, were hostile like Ishmael, but were called to walk with him, and he has declared you are like them. As we pick up in verse 3, you're going to hear him working to dissuade his people and change their behavior like a father instituting a sentence upon a disobedient son. As Paul slides his finger down to find Deuteronomy 11 and verse 16, where we'll pick up in just a second, the reason we keep saying sentencing is guilt has already been established. That happened in chapter 2. But does it make a difference to you whether somebody just shot your daughter? Or whether they raped her first? Yes. Of course it makes a difference. Yes. He's laying out all of the circumstances of their adultery. That's, that's why he's, he's doing this. He's explaining the extent to which they weren't forced into what they did. They chose what they did. They didn't just do something bad. They went further than anybody should have gone in it. That's, it's a sentencing. It's so that you understand the severity of what God is going to say. Deuteronomy 11, 16-21. Be careful that you are not enticed to turn aside, worship, and bow down to other gods. The Lord's anger will burn against you. So that has already happened in this scenario. That happened in the first two chapters in the previous history of Israel. Now look what God says He is going to do. He will close the sky and there will be no rain. The land will not yield its produce and you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord has given you. You will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. 
In this chapter, in chapter 3 of Jeremiah, God's saying, I have already shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. That was a warning given to the people in Deuteronomy, and it was an indicator in the sentencing phase that they will soon perish from the good land. Keep going in verse 18. Imprint these words of mine on your hearts and minds. Bind them as a sign on your hands, and let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, so that as long as the heavens are above the earth, your days and those of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your fathers. So both the heavens and the land react to spiritual infidelity. The land vomits the people out. The heavens shut up so that no rain comes down. The heavens, God's domain, withhold blessing and the land, the bride's domain, yields no produce. And that is already happening. This is a means, though, of course correction to ensure that the bride arrives at the stated goal of her election to be with God in the land as a co-ruler. The reason why God spoke of in Deuteronomy and said, hey, if you do this, I will shut up the rain. The reason why he already did it was a means of course correction. That is supposed to be to them to say, hey, this is what's happening. There's no rain. We better change our ways or otherwise we will soon perish. So the point of that is that God is doing his part. The land is doing its part. They're refusing blessings, not just as a means of punishment. They're refusing blessings to get the bride's attention. So in a courtroom, this would look like, hey, you were warned. A neighbor tried to stop you, but you kept going anyway. That's what that would look like. That is because the impacting part of these statements is the refusal to blush. Come on. The evidence has already been presented. The sentencing is happening at the very moment in chapter 3, and they are still refusing to blush. This is a hardened criminal when the sentence comes, and they do not even budge or move with any remorse. These things should have brought the people to repentance, but did not even achieve the initial steps of shame. There was not even a hint of worldly sorrow inside of them. They didn't have any sign of remorse on their face. This is the sentencing portion of the portrayal, and God is going to press his case as we move on. He is going to hint at what would be anticipated as the most stringent punishment possible. So as we pick up in verse 4, if you were sitting in the courtroom, you'd have this growing sense that the judge is going to throw the book at this person. (laughs) Whatever the maximum is and anything he can figure out how to do, he would do. Isn't that kind of how you would be? Well, that's how we're engaging with this text. Pick up in verse 4 because it gets worse or better depending on how you think of it. Have you not just called to me? My father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. (laughs) So the evils that we are discussing were not done in the midst of a brothel. They were done in close proximity to revival. Like leaving a church service in which the Spirit of the Lord moved powerfully, and while still in sight of the building, pulling over to search your inbox to see if there's any pornography to review. I want you to hear the historical context, because 
the historical context to you, you don't put together the dates right. It, it's all like reading Norwegian history and you're not Norwegian. So let's do this. This is 2 Chronicles 34, and I'm going to begin in verse 29. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. How many of them? All. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God. The God... Of their fathers. Have you not just called to me my father? This is the historical backdrop to Jeremiah's prophecy. So you may be gaining a sense of why we're referring to this as the sentencing phase of the imagery. These are circumstances that are relevant to the behavior and would seem to indicate and call for the strongest possible judgment to be levied against them. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 6 and read through 8, Brother Linton. During the reign of King Josiah. What so king? King Josiah. So the prophecy that we're about to hear, these events are taking place during the reign of King Josiah, which we just read about in Chronicles. Keep going. The Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree, and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Now listen, before we dig into this, I want you to notice, Israel is being referring to the northern ten tribes in this setting. So it's denotative. We're speaking about the northern Ten in that coalition as part of this object lesson. The tribes were taken into captivity, and Judah is referring to the southern tribes who had judgment currently hanging over their heads, even while saying all the right things. Wow. So somebody's already been taken into judgment, and now the southern kingdom has judgment hanging over them. Israel, the northern tribes, they began being deported during the reign of Pekah in 2 Kings you can read about that in chapter 15, 27 through 30. Like, that's not the subject matter that we have tonight. We have limitations on the scope that we can cover because of our time frame. But it's important to understand that the northern tribe going into captivity because of idolatry was in full view of Judah. They watched it happen. They saw the results of infidelity. They saw the results of sin right before their eyes and God's judgment. They saw that God would not hesitate to judge even the elect. Let that settle in on you for a minute. Wow. I want to pause here for just a second. Most of you have children. You just laid into your firstborn son for lying and stealing. 
And then the secondborn was watching it the entire time. And not three minutes later did the same thing. The sentencing is describing the circumstances under which they continued to sin. Look, again, this is the sentencing phase, and it's a trial kind of imagery. It's not only did you murder him, but you murdered him in front of a police officer. You did it with warning in advance not to. You can imagine that a jury who's watching this judgment and sentencing would begin to gasp and wonder what is the next thing that the judge is going to say. Where are we going with this? This is building. This is creating a kind of heat or tension in the air. Do you remember what happened when Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead? The church grew in fear of the Lord and many were added to their number daily. But what if that sentence said, and the next week, friends of Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing? And the week after, their children did the same thing. See, that's kind of the attitude that is being painted here. With that imagery of Ananias and Sapphira, Linton, please read verse 8 for us one more time. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Wow. So... At the beginning of verse 8, it said, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. The verse goes on to say, Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. We have a slide for you. Because those two words are very different. The first describing Israel is the word unfaithful. The second is faithless, describing Judah. This it wasn't immediately obvious to us because the English, English language, you can kind of merge these two words if you're not careful. Uh, there's little or no difference between these terms in our English language. But in Hebrew, they are vastly different. Look, just to illustrate the point, there's almost no difference between those two things in English to the point... Where we keep mixing the two as to which is which, because they don't mean anything different to us. You'll even notice on our slide it's different. (laughs) What we want to focus on is what the Hebrew is conveying. In in full disclosure, I actually got these backwards. The the truth is, is Israel is the one that is called faithless, and Judah is the one that is called unfaithful. Uh. And that becomes important as we go. So forgive me, that slide is exactly in reverse. But we'll make it clear for you as we go because we're going to replace it with some English words that are a better translation. Okay, so somebody say Israel was faithless. Israel was faithless. And Judah was unfaithful. Judah was unfaithful. Okay, Israel, northern tribes, ten tribes, they had turned away. Mesuba, they had turned away. They had fluctuated, vacillated, defected. They were backslidden from what they knew was right. Now, contrast that with that second word, 898, Bagad, in Hebrew. Yeah, by God. By God. (laughs) Judah, the southern kingdom, it says that they were dealing treacherously with the Lord. Look, saying the right thing, but continually plotting their own evil wickedness, saying what was right while knowing, hey, I'm going to leave here and I am going to commit 
this sin against the Lord. Can you see how different those two terms are? So one is I don't trust the Lord enough. The other is I'm going to conceal what I'm doing while pretending to be in right standing. I'm going to act covertly so that I can keep doing what I know is wrong. One is faithlessness and the other is treacherous. One way that we thought about illustrating this to you, it's like the scenario between somebody who falls away by drifting outside the church versus those who do the same thing that that person was doing, but they're standing inside of the church. You know, the connotation of that word by God is that you have a garment that you are covering over yourself in order to hide what is actually inside. It's a deception. It is a trickery. All the while, while standing in the midst of God's people. In many instances, and this is a point that we want you to get tonight. In many instances, this is why whores and tax collectors enter the kingdom before most teachers and leaders enter Mm. the kingdom. You see, all may be equally guilty, but one acknowledges their need while the other treacherously or covertly conceals it out of pretense of righteousness. Look, the connections between the book of Romans and the book of Jeremiah are innumerable. In fact, it is clear to us that Paul wrote the book of Romans with Jeremiah on his mind. He follows every theme Jeremiah introduces to their conclusions. A hint of this truth is found in the Greek cognate for the Hebrew word begad, the LXX replaces the term with Greek 802 asunthetos, which is only found in the Newer Testament in the first chapter of the book of Romans. One time. I want to read to you Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. The first chapter of Romans is meant to humble a Jewish leadership in a thriving church by reminding them of the reality of their own history. Paul is reminding them of the history of Judah in their treacherous, traitorous acts towards the Lord in the first chapter of Romans. He's reminding them that they were a people who knew God. These are not just people that have never heard of God. It's not like they didn't know any better. They actually knew the Lord. This was a people who claimed to be wise. This was a people who claimed to know the word, claimed to know what God requires. But they were a people who exchanged the glory of God for idols. That is pretty treacherous, isn't it? Knowing God and yet concealing an inward sinful desire that is not crushed inside you, exchanging the glory of God for idols. Look, you should recognize that language from the exchange mentioned in Jeremiah 2. Do you remember in Jeremiah 2 what nation has ever exchanged its gods? Yeah. Do you hear the same language in Romans? Yes. Okay. Paul is definitely thinking about Jeremiah while he's writing the book of Romans. Let's read Romans 1, and I'm going to read to you 29 through 32. 
They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. It's even more instructive if you think of their parents as the patriarchs. They, are, they have no understanding, no fidelity. That is the word that would be translated treacherous. That's what God is saying about Judah. No love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The 2011 NIV translates asuncitos as no fidelity. We don't have time to teach on the book of Romans tonight. But suffice it to say that we should all walk humbly in love mercy when dealing with those who, de who we deem as weaker or inferior. Amen. This Amen. is best achieved by honestly examining our own historical walk with the Savior. That is what Paul is making Jewish leaders do in the first chapter of Romans. Mm. The result of such an examination will be the same as Paul's conclusion. All men have been bound over to sin that he might have mercy on us all. Now, if I had more time, I would put Romans in its proper context for you. I don't have that kind of time tonight. But I do want to give you a hint at it. There is a change in Roman emperors and a decree that is issued that means that most Jews have had to leave Rome. When you do the math on the decrees, this means that the very few Jewish leaders of the Christian community in Rome are working with converts, Gentiles, who've only been saved a few years. Probably only two years. Could be as much as five. This caused a feeling of superiority having to teach dumb children. And Paul is leveling that playing field. But he turns around in the book and does the same thing to the Gentiles. And he says, don't you for a moment become proud or boastful. Because God is able to graft in Jews again. There is a great equality in this book. Amen. And it preserves Israel's national destiny of election, which is the climax of the entire book. But we don't have time to teach on that tonight. <laughs> Let's go to verse 9. We're going to continue to progress in our courtroom setting here. 9 through 11. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, wow. declares the Lord. Man. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Man, what a couple of verses. Yeah. Israel, the northern tribes, their immorality mattered so little, affected them so little, that they progressed to sexual acts with wood and stone in God's sight. Pretty debates, and he's laying it out clearly. The fact that he starts out by saying that and ends where he does in verse 11 is even more surprising. Judah, the southern tribes, they knew this. They knew the cost of sin, and they had watched it happen to their sister or their brother. But they pacified themselves with words alone 
rather than true repentance. Godly sorrow kind of repentance. It's a good thing that that never happens anymore. No, we've never witnessed that play out before. Nobody sits inside of a church considering themselves better because they know the right things to say and their brother's sin has been fully exposed, but they don't repent of their own sin. Wow. No, nobody does that anymore. Now, when you consider this, and we are imagining ourselves in God's courtroom because we will stand before that throne. When he, in his sentencing, has illustrated that his people have watched their brother or their sister be judged and did not turn from their sin. Man, we're reaching a fever pitch now. We're discussing the fact that you watched this happen and you continued anyway. Look, obviously, sinful Israel is more righteous than treacherous Judah. The text just said that. Largely because Judah had an example, a living witness to be enlightened by, to watch and learn from. But they still didn't repent. And these are the circumstances of the sentencing. Have you ever wondered where Paul got the idea that obviously sinful Gentiles could be saved, could be grafted in, and provoke Jews to envy for their own election? This might be giving you a hint. We're pointing to those that have previously been judged and living in idolatry longer, and those that had the truth still saw the judgment but did not obey, and now God is calling back the northern ten tribes. Let's get verse 12. Proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Wow. This verse should be shocking to you. After this fever pitch that is being built up, built up, built up, the Lord says, I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Look, it's also not just a shock to us. It's a shock to theologians everywhere around the world. Because here God is proclaiming through Jeremiah that the northern tribes, they're not lost. Okay, The northern ten tribes, they are still part of the Lord's plan. In fact, he's calling them back to himself for the purpose of showing them mercy. Amen. Look, Jeremiah 3.8 clearly says, we read it already, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away. But now, a hundred years later, after the fact, he's calling a new generation of Israel. A new generation of those ten northern tribes back to himself because they still are every bit a part of the plan and the covenants that he had already given. God is not done with the northern tribes. He never will be because of his election. Men who do not understand this truth, they're prone to make enormous errors of interpretation. Listen to what Hosea chapter 2 says. Trisha is going to walk us through a couple of verses in Hosea chapter 2. These are absolutely enlivening. Not just to your knowledge, but they will stir your soul with the attitude of our God. I want to give you a hint as he does this. If you've ever wondered, where did Paul get the idea that Gentiles who were not his people could be provoked, I'm sorry, could be provoking to Jews who are his people? Examine Hosea and understand Gentiles are not in view at all. 
Paul was able to look at a pattern in the word and pick up something. Come on. So Hosea was about 100 years before Jeremiah. Hosea was a prophet that lived in the southern region of Judah, but he was a prophet to the northern tribes, Israel. And this is what he said in the second chapter, 14th verse of his prophecy. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Who's that her? That's Israel. It's Israel. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Ahor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. If we slide down to verse 20, God continues this speech. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Look, the God of Israel will call the northern tribes back as his bride. Even though he previously stated, I wrote her a certificate of divorce. God says, I will bring them back. I will speak tenderly to them. The northern tribes will love the Lord as their husband. They're not going to have to conjure it up. God says, you will love me as a husband because of what I will do. Even the land will respond to the event. Did you see that? Even the third party of the covenant is going to respond and wake up and be a recipient. They are the ones that the phrase, to those called not my people, you are my people, refers. It refers to northern Israel. It is quoted in both Hosea 2 and Romans 9. In Romans 9, Paul applies it to Gentiles, and yet it is originated as spoken to northern Israel. Do you think Paul is getting something here? Do you think Paul's connecting these thoughts and saying, I will do for the same as the Gentiles as I've done for northern Israel, even though they were wicked, I will bring them in to the fold. So look, it's important that uh, we don't teach the book of Romans tonight. (laughs) But I want to help you here. Understand that Paul could look at the way the northern tribes were divorced and estranged from God. He could read Jeremiah and know that the northern tribes' promise of restoration was used to provoke Judah, the southern tribes, to jealousy. Wow. Mm. Paul knew what was happening with the Gentiles in his day and could predict what would happen with the Jews in the future because he was informed by the book of Jeremiah. He's not quoting Hosea out of context. He sees that the context of Jeremiah is the sentencing phase. And the more guilty Judah is, by showing kindness to the northern tribes, it would produce a response in the southern tribes. I want you to catch at the moment 
of this sentencing, when you would think the hammer is going to drop, God starts speaking about showing kindness to the northern tribes. But you're still biting your nails because he's not talking to the northern tribes. Judah is in the courtroom, and they're hearing this, but they are more guilty than the northern tribes. If you pick up in 13 and 14, remember he's speaking in Judah, but the context of 13 and 14 is about the northern tribes. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree, and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. You've scattered your favors to foreign gods. Listen, remember, the context here, the Lord is the husband of the northern tribes. After saying, you have scattered your favors, he elected this people. He is speaking to them despite the things that they have done. But his election of them It's irrevocable. It's irrefutable. It does not change. We had a hundred year period where there was a separation and yet he's calling his bride back to him once again. But he will sift them as Amos 9 speaks about. He will shake them and will have a purified bride, one that is righteous in the end. He will have every surviving person of Israel after that sifting as his holy and spotless Bride before him. Yes. Like, did you catch where he would bring these Samaritans, these northern ten tribes in? He will bring them to Zion. He will bring them to his holy mountain, to the one place that his name dwells. They're coming in to the promise. They're not just being cleaned up and left where they are. He's saying, I will bring them into Zion. Like, if this had been fulfilled in history already, then John 4 in the discussion with the Samaritan woman would make no sense. There would be no reason to have it. Jesus is speaking to a woman of the northern ten tribes, of that bride that has been estranged, about the healing, about the unification that would happen between Judah and Israel as a work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we're not going to get it. I think sometimes when we say sift, you hear sever. He doesn't sever the connection with his bride. He simply sifts his bride. An individual could be severed, but because of election, the nation can only be sifted. Do you hear the difference there? Yes. Now imagine that you are Judah sitting in the courtroom, and you're, you're listening to this, about the northern ten tribes which you walked in the room thinking you were better than. And you hear that they did all of these things, but you did them too. And God considers it worse because you know better. They didn't have the strength to trust him. You claim to trust him, but conceal your behavior. What are you expecting from God's hand? And are you beginning to go, my God, I'd like to immigrate to the northern tribes? (laughs) What is happening inside your heart? Engage with that for a minute. Come on. And then we'll pick up in 15. As as we read 15 through 17, as Linton reads for us, it's important to realize 15 through 17, we still have Jeremiah speaking in the presence of Judah 
speaking about the northern tribes. You see, having this kind of perspective, having this kind of understanding, it changes everything about this passage for us. Yeah. Let's read 15 through 17. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, it will never enter their minds or, wow. be, yeah, or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will any other be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Come on. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Amen. The northern tribe will be in Zion. The northern tribe, their numbers will greatly increase in the land. They will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. It won't be Bethel that they're calling the throne of the Lord. It's not going to be Dan that they go to to worship at. They will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. See, the fact of the matter is, is that all nations are going to gather to Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. Maybe we should take a moment, pause here, and note that this has not yet even happened. Certainly not in 70 AD. See, God's election to Israel is still in effect to this day because we have not seen this happen in our day or any day before us yet. This is still in effect. His election is still in effect. It's not redefined. Some who say it's not redefined. It's not, not redefined. It's in effect. It's in effect. Look, how does this happen? How do we have the northern kingdom and the blessing in Jerusalem? It happens because the Lord cures the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Come on, man. It's all dependent on the mercy of of God that he will pour out on them. He will cure their stubborn hearts. <coughs> Imagine, put yourself in the generation of this kingdom of Judah for a moment. You're hearing this. You're sitting in the courtroom. You're hearing what the Lord's saying about the northern tribes. Would it maybe provoke you to envy? If you thought your words made your righteous, made you righteous, as so many in this generation do? Would this cause you to maybe rethink your position for a moment? Yes. Yeah. What comes next is going to be absolutely extraordinary. Are you guys ready for verse 18? Yes. Good. Let's hold it off for a minute. <laughs> Let's suppose for a moment that I own a dog and I own a cat. Big, big mystery here. And they're both mine. They're both loved. But the dog sticks closer to me. And I throw the cat out of the house because it's been stealing food from the garbage. And then I walk in and the dog's got his head in the garbage. And dog is scared. And I start to talk to him about you saw me throw cat out of the house. You saw what I did to Cat. <laughs> hey, Cat, come here. I love you. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to feed you some bacon. What is Dog doing right there right now? What the hell, man? What's going on? How can you treat Cat like that? 
but somewhere in the back of dog's mind. He should be waiting, wondering whether I'll have the same mercy on him since he's guilty of the yeah. same thing and we enjoyed a closer relationship. Yeah. It should be yeah. provoking dog to envy cat. Yeah. That's what should be happening. That is the picture that is being painted, but in much more severe terms because we're not talking about dogs and cats and stealing groceries. We're talking about infidelity and eternal covenants. Yeah. Now... Let's pick up in verse 18. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. you got to imagine what, what Judah is feeling at this moment. Wait a second. This is my sentencing, and you're telling me that this pagan, two house of worship people, golden calves, is going to come to our land and we're going to worship together? I mean, how crazy would that be? Look, Jeremiah spoke these words in the 5th century B.C., and many today have lost faith in this prophecy. But we can tell you two things with certainty. Are you ready for two things? The first is that this has never happened in history. Never. This has never happened in biblical history, and secular historians confirm it has never happened at all. Judah and Israel have never completely unified in Jerusalem. Not once. Never universally declared that Jerusalem was the throne of the Lord. It has never once been declared amongst all the nations that Jerusalem is the throne of the Lord. It has never been surrounded as one people standing in the midst of the nations honoring the Lord in Jerusalem. Never happened. It has never been cured of the stubbornness of their evil hearts together. Israel is still plagued with that same problem. So the unification that is described in this has never happened. It was still disparate in the first century. It's still disparate today. Never did all of the nations come around and say, oh, obviously the throne of the Lord is in Jerusalem and we see his people unified there. But there's a second thing in this passage. The second thing we know with certainty is that Paul believed this would happen. And so do we. In Romans eleven twenty six thirty two, 32, Paul says, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned... They are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are, say, irrevocable. Irrevocable. Just as you who were one, who are at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy on you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Paul's saying that this is planned by God so that he would ultimately have mercy on them. Now looking at the scenario in Jeremiah, which is what Paul is looking at, both houses of Israel were always elect. But one walked more closely, or so it would seem. One was obviously guilty, the northern kingdom, 
In the southern kingdom, it was far less obvious that they were guilty. In fact, there is a revival going on while he's prophesying this. But God bound all men over, those who were far and those who were near. And the way that he gets the attention of those that are near is by showing favor to those that are far. Yeah. Do you hear the book of Romans in this? Look, take a minute and ask ourselves. If this is the sentencing phase, is this the sentence that you were expecting? No. I don't think it's the one Judah was expecting. If you were the husband, is this how you would have handled this situation? See, it would seem that we were building to a climactic and fatal end for Judah because of their infidelity. Wouldn't it seem that way? Yes. But instead, we get the northern ten tribes being restored, followed by unification and purification with the southern kingdom. Come on. Who could have expected that? If you had understood that as we were reading it the first time, how could you not leap out of your seats? Yeah. First, this speaks of the unbreakable nature of God's promises. But more than that, it speaks to the heart of God for his bride, Israel. He's not, going to, I mean, he's not going to kill his bride. He's going to cure his bride. Amen. Amen. He's not going to replace his bride. He's going to restore his bride. Amen. He's not going to permanently punish his bride. He's going to purify his bride. Amen. Amen. He is not going to sever his bride. He is going to sift his bride. We want to point out just for a minute what we read earlier in verse 18 was a shock and a surprise because Judah thought they were going to be thrown away. When you're hearing the list of your sentencing and your sin, the shock was that God had brought about restoration for someone else and was indicting me. You might even begin to think that they are the ones that are going to be discarded and replaced. And yet the verdict that the good king issued was that he was going to unify and restore both houses. He was not done with his bride, not even one of the 12 tribes. See, there's an astounding miracle that happens again and again and is aiming towards the day that all things are restored when he is able to restore his people despite the previous failings, despite the fact that they have gone astray, and bring them back to repentance together. He is able to make his bride pure and spotless. Hey, if we fast forward for just a second, and Judah's going to take us into Ephesians 5, but something not in our notes that I, I want you to get because we segment the word in ways that we shouldn't. This makes Revelation 7 that some people think is a military census and others take as a symbolic number representing a, a whole group of people where all 12 tribes are listed as, as working for the Lord and part of the presence before the throne. This, this is a fulfillment of what Jeremiah is talking about. Yeah. Not one tribe will be lost. Israel will not be lost. God's promise to Israel is still in effect. And the fact that men are faithless does not change the fact that God is faithful Amen. to the national destiny Amen. of Israel. Yeah. Now, why might this be important to you? 
Wives, have you done anything wrong? Yes. <laughs> One of you. Yes. One of you. Of course. If your husband threw you away every time you did something wrong, how long would you be married? It's the husband's job. He's the priest of the home. It is his job to do certain things. We teach on these things. Judah's going to read to you these things, and you forget something. Twice in the passage, Paul says, I'm really talking about Jesus and the church. It is God as the groom, and it shows us his behavior. Now listen closely and instead of just thinking about you, think when he says church, think about his first bride. Yeah. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. We need to understand that Israel was and is the bride before it was even a possibility that us mysterious inclusions had been added. <laughs> the primary context of the church is the family of Abraham that we have been added to. The entire concept of your inclusion is based on what he does with those that were on the outside. In the context of our chapter this evening, the northern ten tribes and their unification with Judah. That they were the ones on the outside. They were away from Jerusalem. They were surrounded by idolatry. But he was able to bring them in and unify them with Judah, causing both parties to depend upon the one true king who could justify them. Look, if Adonai will not complete this process for both houses of Israel, described in Jeremiah 3... What would make any of you think that he would complete the process mm. for you based on your own wretched historical walk with him? Mm. And if you don't believe you've had a wretched historical walk with him, then clearly you're in Judah's position yeah. in the courtroom. Yeah. Look, the good news for us, the reality is, regardless of what faithless men have professed or faithless thoughts we've had for a moment, we serve a faithful God, Amen. Yeah. one who will do it for both houses of Israel, and he will also do it for us. Saints, we want to tell you I have reason for confidence. There's some areas here that we probably could have elucidated a little more clearly. They expected to die, and God unified them and saved them anyway. Anybody in the courtroom would expect that they die. Yeah. The jury would have expected that they die. The maximum sentence. That's exactly what you and I deserve. Yeah, yeah. And yet we serve a God who can cleanse us, yeah. free of stain, Come free on, of blemish, and we might be empowered to yeah. deeds that are higher than what we previously walked in. Yeah. Now, I get that all of the amens come when we focus it on you. <laughs> yeah. But in Jeremiah 3, you're not in the picture. Yeah. Your goat-worshipping ancestors were not in view of God's mercy. This is about Israel. Amen. And Paul is looking at Israel in Romans and he's extrapolating out your future from what he says to Jeremiah. 
So if it's not true when he said it to Jeremiah, then it's not true for you either. But if it is true, what he said to Jeremiah, then you can know that what Paul extrapolated from it as led by the Spirit is also true for you. Uh, I get that there's a lot of logical arguments out there. They work really hard, like some strange Algebra 2 equation, to try to make this variable anything other than Israel, because it looks impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And we need to adjust to God's baseline. That has to happen. We're going to walk through a few basic Bible promises. Somebody say basic. 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 To you, they're going to feel advanced. But they're not. They're basic Bible promises to Israel. They are the foundation of every promise that you want to claim for yourself. And if God doesn't do it for Israel, you, my friend, have no hope of him doing it for you. But he will do it for Israel, which gives you every hope that he will also do it for you, mysterious inclusion. All right, we need some hands here for some passages. Who's ready? Miguel, I'm so happy that you volunteered. Isaiah 11, 10 through 13 will be our first passage. Glenn, can you please get Isaiah 45, verse 17? Nolskis, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Chris, Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. Abimbola. Ezekiel 37, verses 21 through 23. Yes, please. I'm sorry. Marvin. Marvin! <laughs> Happens sometimes. See, I always thought it was my age that caused this. <laughs> but I think it's the pressure of the anointing up here. <laughs> Ezekiel 39, 25 through 29, my brother Marlon. Who wants Hosea 3, 4 through 5? Yes, Timo. Hosea 3, 4 through 5. Next is going to be Amos 9, 14 through 15, Assad. Steve, Zechariah 10 and verse 6. Yes, Paul. Isaiah 54, 6 through 7. You can tell there's just a few basic principles that we're going to be going over here. Cho, Jeremiah 33, 23 through 26. JJ, Zephaniah 3, 13 through 20. Who else do we have here? Josiah, Micah 7, 15 through 20. And Mr. Spites in the back there, please. Our last passage, Joel 3, 16 through 21. Now as you prepare to hear Isaiah 11, you may hear this list of 11 scriptures and at some point go, I... It's kind of repetitive. Yes! That's the point! (laughs) Our first passage, Isaiah 11, 10 through 13. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. What is the Lord going to do in that day? Reclaim the remnant that is left. He's going to reach out his hand and he's going to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. Where are they going to be, Michael? From Assyria. 
Read! Assyria. Read, son! Read! From Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. So we're not just talking about the Babylonian captivity, are we? No. no. You should keep reading, Michael. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. Mm. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will be jealous of Judah. Will no. not be jealous no. of Judah. <laughs> not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile. Amen. That was not fulfilled in Ezra's day. That was not fulfilled in Nehemiah's day. That was not true in the first century, and it's not true today. But it will be true. Amen. Amen. Who's got Isaiah 45, 17? Isaiah 45, 17. But Israel will be saved by the Lord. Wait, let's say it again. But Israel will be saved by the Lord. Or, or you could just Mark through that and write any nation that you want. No. 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 With what kind of salvation, Glenn? With an everlasting salvation. Amen. Man, not a temporary salvation. Not one that comes and goes. Not one that fades because of their own sin. An everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. Man, i got to tell you, that's coming. And it has never happened, and that's proven every time there's a UN meeting right now. Yeah. <laughs> Israel is publicly shamed before the world daily. Yeah. So this scripture has not yet, it was all done at the cross. You uh, need to grow up. <laughs> Everything that needed to be set in motion was set in motion, but it is certainly not complete. Let's take an obscure scripture. <laughs> From which yeah. we get the Newer Testament. Let's take Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. With who? With the house of Israel. Anybody else? And with the house of Judah. Who is the new covenant with? Israel and Judah. It's not all done yet because we haven't seen everything happen in Israel and Judah. That have to have you said, but me, I got mines. <laughs> you need to be careful. There's an entire chapter dedicated to warning you about that very thought yeah. in the Newer Testament. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. So they're over, they're severed, they're gone. Or, keep reading. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. With who? With the house, house of Israel. Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. Listen, before we read this next part, it might be worth doing that in all of your Bibles, where it says New Testament, you write the words, with Israel and Judah. That might help you understand your Bible. Now, what's he going to do for them, Nolan? I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will what? 
They will be my people. They will not be replaced. They will not be defined, redefined. They will be my people. Now that is either true in the Peshat or it's not. But if it's not, what does that mean for you about John 3.16 or any other verse? By the way, is John 3.16 in the New Covenant? And who is the New Covenant with? Israel and Judah. Wow. Revelation ought to be happening for you. It ought to protect you from some prevailing error of our time. No matter how smart you are, you need to be careful not to ignore what amounts to 500 years of prophecy that we're going through, spoken of in 11 different places, and we could have done it in 70 places. You have to grab hold of this. Come on. The court has already met on this subject. This decision was made a long time before you were aware that there was a God of Israel. And he is going to do it. <laughs> Jeremiah 32, pick up in verse 37. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. Pause right there, Chris. <laughs> Man, that's been fulfilled. We have the day of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? They were brought back from the captivity. Wow. That must end right here. Prophecies fulfilled, done between now and 70 AD. Chris, why don't you keep reading? Let's just see if every aspect of it is fulfilled. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. Pause there. So that they will always fear me. Saints, I have a great love for the country of Israel. I have a great love for quite a few Jews in this city that we've been friends with for a long time and shared the gospel. But I don't know if you've met them. They don't always fear God. In fact... There's a reputation that is much like the northern tribes and the southern during the state of Jeremiah, even among pagans. You know why that is? Because this promise has not been fulfilled and we are still in process of seeing it completed. Much like you and I that are in process of being saved. Keep reading, Chris. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. An everlasting covenant. Keep going. I will never stop doing good to them. Never. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. Who inspires them? See, you think that there is a choice. Well, there's a choice for an individual. But for the nation, there will be no choice. God will have the bride that he said he would have. And you'll know it's happened when the entire nation fears him and loves him in a way that all the nations have gathered around and said he's enthroned there and they never turn away again. Paul looked forward to that day. You are severely deluding yourself if you believe it has already happened. And the trickery that has to go on in the heart and mind to make these promises referred to you is astounding. Hey, as Chris reads verse 41, remember the context of a husband here. Read it. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. God says... With all of my heart and with all of my soul, I will plant them in this land. Saints, this is the fulfillment of a purified bride that is reciprocating what the husband has demonstrated. They are now unified and with all of his heart and all of his soul. You want to know the heart of God? It's this. He will see them permanently 
planted in their land. Yeah. Now we may be a ways from it, but it is a certainty that it will come to pass. Come Are there some true things in the United States Constitution? Yeah. Yes. Yes. We would do good to remember that. <laughs> they're, they're, they're true in any country in the world. God's uh, given people unalienable rights. Um, that, that's true in any country in the world. But can you imagine picking up the United States Constitution, reading those words, and thinking that it doesn't apply to the one nation that it was given to? Right. Okay. Whatever you think about, well, all nations are virtually the same now because we're in Christ. The very document that caused you to believe that was given to one nation on earth where they are specifically named and the land is specifically named. Yeah. All right, Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 21. And say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. Man, I love those I will statements by the Lord. I will do this. It's a certainty. I will gather them from all I around. will gather them from all around, says the Lord. And bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation of the land on the mountains of Israel. Come on. There will be one king over all of them. There will be one king over all of them. Somebody point to the one king standing on the earth right now over the one nation of Israel. You can't do it because it is a future event. It is coming soon. But it is not yet here. It will be fulfilled, though. And because we understand that it will be fulfilled, we also understand that the things that the Lord has given to us will be fulfilled as well. Keep reading, Evan Bullock. And they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with the idols and vow images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will save them from all their sinful backsliding. This should, this should be striking at your very heart. Striking at your very soul. The Lord will save His people Israel from their backslidden state. He will bring restoration to them. He will bring unity between them. And He will set the Messiah over them for all eternity. If that's not true for them, then you know how the rest of the phrase goes. But it is true for them, which ought to bring you great hope. Amen. Are you still waiting to be cured of some straying behavior? Yes. yes. Well, acknowledge it. Blush about it. Amen. Cry out to him. He will cleanse you. And he will do this. And the reason that you know he will do it is he promised it to Israel and he will do it for them. You know his nature by the promises he made to his one people in one place on the planet that are representative of his feelings for all mankind. That's how Paul wrote the book of Romans. I really would like to teach you that, but you have to buy me coffee and maybe a steak. So as we, as we continue, notice how many different prophets are saying the same thing. You know what that ought to key you into? Is that it wasn't fulfilled in their time. It was an ongoing promise and it's still not fulfilled in our time. Who's got Ezekiel 39, 25 through 29? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord said. I will bring Jacob back from captivity. and will have compassion on all the people of Israel. I will be zealous for my holy name. Okay, pause right there. When God says, I will be zealous for my holy name, 
Don't think to yourselves that God is just simply, well, you know what, because my name's at stake and I promise this, I have to do this. No, God is speaking married language here. He is saying, because they are my bride, my name rests on them, and I will fulfill my word to my bride because they have the same name as me. Look what he says with that thought in view. Verse 26. God is saying this because He cares about them. Because He wants them to forget their shame. Because God is going to do something when they will forget all of the sinful things that they have done. Husbands, when your wife has messed up, do you want her to sit in shame and remorse? No, you want to wash her in the Word. You want to see her victorious. You want to see her radiant. And that is how God feels about His bride. And He is going to do that for her. Because His bride is a reflection of Him and His ability to do it. Verse 27. When I have broken back from the nation and, and gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself uh, towards them in the sight of, of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For, for though I send them into a south upon the nation, I will gather them from, from their own land, not leaving any behind. Wow. Not, not leaving how many? Any. None will be left behind. I'm Look, pretty that, sure that's never happened. No, and the proof is, is there are Jews living in other countries other than the land. And this is reflected in the Newer Testament if you know where to look. How, could he, how could he make such a statement though? How could any of us hope to be cured of backsliding to have not one area left behind. How could any of us hope? Well, it's verse 29. It's true for them. And by virtue of that, it can be true for you. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that Tim LaHaye got his uh, Left Behind series. Complete. I, I think he was a little off on his theology. <laughs> I will no longer hide my face from them. For I will pour out my spirit on their house, on the house of Israel, declares the sober Lord. He will pour out His Spirit on the entire house of Israel. Not a few select Jews at Pentecost. Not a few select Gentiles. He will pour out His Spirit on the entire house of Israel and cause them to walk in the covenant. Would y'all like to teach the book of Acts right now? Maybe take a foray into the book of Joel. I mean, we got all the time in the world, right? If, if Pentecost was the fulfillment of that, then where is the blood, the smoke, and the billows? Yeah. He was describing a process that began at Pentecost and would be complete at his return. Yeah. See, yeah. when the New Testament writers appropriate Joel's language, his spirit will be poured out on all flesh, they meant that they could see that the process had begun. Yeah. But you will know when it's complete because all Israel will be saved. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. But we can't teach the book of Acts or Joel tonight. Instead, let's go to Hosea 3, verses 4 through 5. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince. Wow, that was prophesied. Yeah. Without sacrifice or sacred stone. Man, that was prophesied. Without ephod or idol. Afterward. What? Afterward. Afterward. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God. 
and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. When will they do this? In the last days. In the last days. So there must still be an Israel. It must not have happened a couple thousand years ago. It must be exactly what Hosea said. There would be a long time period where they did not recognize a king, when they did not come to the Lord. But in the last days, he would accomplish this. Come on. We're about to read Amos 9, 14 through 15. As soon as you hear these, rouse yourself. Come on. Do not allow yourself just to hear it as repetition. You're going to begin to understand the practical realities of this, even if you tentatively believed it in advance but could not prove it. You need to understand what Amos is saying and what is required for it to take place. Amos 9, 14 through 15. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land. Never again to be uprooted ever. From the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now we've emphasized again and again, the never again, the continuous nature of what he's speaking. But I want you to make a connection for me tonight. If Leviticus 18 is a true everlasting covenant, as we enumerated earlier, what is the requirement for remaining in the land? That it cannot be defiled. How does that happen with an unholy people? How could you ever have this statement be true unless they have been sanctified and made into a holy people? Come on, man! What is our hope? That we might be made into the image of Christ. We're now tasting of the age to come, but heading headlong into the justification that will be ours when our sinful nature is put to death, underfoot, never to rise again. That came from their promise. See, if you were not plagued with false teachings that you were given in advance, if you did not believe that covenants were set aside, then when you heard Amos 9, you would know you can't have permanence in the land unless you first have purity in the people. Come on. And so when you hear about permanence in the land, you would know that the prerequisite is he's done a miracle in the people. Come on. Come on. That's what we're longing for. <laughs> Zechariah 10, 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will not be as though I had they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. It will be as though I had not rejected them. Wow. You should be going straight back to Jeremiah chapter three and thinking about, hey, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord will not even be missed at all in the land. It's going to be full and complete and total restoration. There will be nothing that will be missed. There will be nothing that I will not restore. This is incredible. The people of God will feel as though the Lord never had rejected them at all. It will be a state of complete restoration and bliss together with their Messiah, together with their King. Now, that's going to give us hope for the times coming. Come on. That's going to give us hope through the last days. That's going to give us tremendous hope that when the pressures are pressing on Israel and the pressures are pressing on us as we stand with Israel, 
we know what the outcome will be. Hallelujah. And we who stand firm to the end will be saved. And at the end of days, it will be as though there were never any rejection in any situation. There will be full restoration with our King. Look, we don't have time to go into it now, and so we're not going to. Justin's going to help us with Isaiah 54. But one of the things, even in Zionist movements, that is largely misunderstood, I misunderstood it for many, many years. Israel will never be uprooted completely from the land right now. But that doesn't mean, if you read these prophecies carefully, that they will not be banished to the corners of the earth with a small contingent in Jerusalem. In fact, many of these prophecies require another exile. They have to come back from the north. They have to come back from Assyria. They have to come back from nations that today are Muslim nations. What this, what this means is you need to understand these things or there's no way you'll understand the plan of God if you see two-thirds of Israel going to captivity today. Yeah. It will look again to you like the promises of God have failed. These promises have not yet been fulfilled. Yeah. But they will be, and he will fulfill every good promise to you. Got Isaiah 54, 6 through 7. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. I deserted you for a brief moment, but I will take you back with great compassion. What comes before Isaiah 54? Isaiah 53! chapter of the suffering servant the chapter that every theologian attributes to jesus the messiah suffering for his people and then after that begins the process of deep compassion god bringing them back you were only to be rejected for a brief moment i abandon you but with deep compassion i will bring you back Amen. yeshua started the process and is still ongoing today until we reach isaiah 66 Amen. in the end Who's got Jeremiah 33, 23 through 26? The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose, so they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. I wonder what he could be talking about. <laughs> this is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, it is. The what kind of laws? I'm pretty sure that there was a covenant made in Genesis 9 with the sun and the moon that they would continue, and as long as they continued, God would never again flood the earth by water. So if God has rejected Israel, then he's also rejected the sun coming up today. He's rejected the moon in the sky, and you people should get ready for an incredible Noahic deluge. <laughs> And it would also mean that you serve a capricious God like Allah that can't keep his promise from Genesis 9 or Jeremiah 33 or Jeremiah 31 or any of the other promises. We need to be very careful to understand God means exactly what he says. People were saying that Israel, both houses, were rejected. And God is flatly saying that is absurd. Come on. And I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their For fortunes. For I will. Will. Will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Okay, look, we got ten minutes. 
In, in fact, y'all see that? Ten minutes? Andrew, we got ten minutes? Yeah. Charlie, we got ten minutes? Do we have ten minutes, Charlie? Do we have ten minutes, JJ? Yes, sir. I counted 30 then. Uh, let's do Zephaniah. <laughs> let's do Zephaniah 3, 13 through 20. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. Why? Because no wrong, no lie, no iniquity is found in them. You only see foreign powers invading Israel as God's response to evil behavior trying to course correct his son, his bride. But it has been taken away. Keep going, JJ. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Come on, honey. <laughs> Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Come on. Amen. Keep going. He will take great delight in you. Yes. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Sounds like a happy husband. This is describing the idyllic setting of marriage. When sin has been removed and the king is with them. Not at the Father, not somewhere in a distant land, when what is there has come to earth and they are reunited together as one. JJ, keep reading. It's going to get better as we get to 20. The sorrows for the appointed feast are removed from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. Things have been right between you and me. Now I'm going to deal with the guys who oppressed my wife, who were ugly in the age in the past. Now all wrongs are made right. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they put where they put to shame. Where they will put to shame. There's gonna to have to be some enormous changes in Iran. Yeah. <laughs> At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. How many of them? Oh. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Saints, this can only happen at the end of the age, at the restoration of all things, when there is a ruling and reigning son of David on the earth. This is the millennium. This is what we are working towards and building towards now, and the message that we preach is that of the coming son of David with his reward and his recompense descending upon the earth, primarily coming to rescue his bride. This is the Bible story, and we must familiarize ourselves with it to know what we are facing to see the Son of David coming on the clouds. Are you all getting that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go back to the courtroom setting. Nick's going to pick up in Micah 7. We're back in a courtroom setting. What did you expect when you heard all of the idolatries? What did you expect when you heard that he would have favor on northern tribes, but you were more guilty than the northern tribes? What did you expect, saints? Judgment. 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 Micah 7, 15. 
as in the day when, when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. Man, I, I love the reciprocity. I love the way that the Bible has the same pattern that completes time and time and time again. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. The wonder as they came out of Egypt was that there were signs and miracles in the actual environment and on the planet as he took them out. There will again be signs in the heavens and signs on the earth as the Lord does this for his people. Yeah, come on. 16. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will, they will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. By the way, the they is, is every nation other than Israel on the planet. Yeah. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin. What does he do? Pardon he pardons sin. We're back in the courtroom and the Lord says, I am a God who pardons the sin of my people. I forgive their transgression of the remnant of my inheritance. Keep going, Josiah. Wow, oh, come on. Yeah. Listen, that ought to be good news for you. Yeah. Yeah. Good news for them. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. How many of you have claimed that verse? Yeah. Hmm. But it was yeah. written to them. Yeah. Yeah. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as he pledged on, on oath to our fathers in Abraham. You see, this has to do with the covenant that he made with Abraham at the very beginning. This has to do with the conversations that he had with the forefathers and the promises that he made with them from the very beginning of where this story started. That is what we depend on. That is the lens at which we view everything that has to do with us in this. The whole mystery of our involvement has, goes, has to go all the way back to the covenant and the promises of the forefathers. Amen. Now, I think uh, many of you believe that you've understood Romans 4, which we're not teaching tonight. <laughs> I want to suggest to you a hermeneutic key so that you don't get this wrong. He will do it for you with them. He will Amen. never do yeah. it for you without them. Amen. The fact that you're a mysterious inclusion into the sons of Abraham does not mean that the actual sons of Abraham no longer have this promise. And if we could get that straight, it actually magnifies the greatness of God. Yeah. It actually shows just how merciful, just how yeah. pardoning he is. Yeah. Let's get into Joel 3.16. Yeah. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. Now you got to say that like the Lord would do it. <laughs> the Lord will roar from Zion and Let thunder. Let us hear you roar, Leslie! The Lord will roar from yeah. Zion. Now, pause right there. I just got to point out real quick. <laughs> Joel 3 comes after Joel 2. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Joel 2 is what is quoted at Pentecost. Joel 3 
is happening afterward. And the context of this passage is Israel being invaded. And while Israel is being invaded, the Lord is roaring like a lion coming out of his stronghold. I want to tell you that has never happened in history where they're being invaded and all of a sudden the Lord is a refuge. They have been taken away every time they were invaded. Keep going in verse 18. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and will bruise them through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. I just want to read that to you again out of the NIV. It says, Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. This takes place after Joel 2. He's saying, I have not pardoned them completely. In fact, foreigners are still invading. In fact, these things are still happening. But on that day, I will destroy all the nations that invade, and I will make Jerusalem inhabited forever. If this had happened in AD 70, then there would have been a stream of water, as Ezekiel said, flowing from the throne of the Lord that would have transformed the Dead Sea into a sea teeming with life. But it didn't happen. And rather than expose you to further error, let's just do this. Let's say, in short, hearing what you've heard, either every prophet was wrong or the theologians are wrong. Our hope in sharing these things with you is that you may understand the nature of Adonai as a husband to his people. That's why we're doing it. It's not to pick a theological battle. You lost that before you walked in here. Because God's right. When he could have permanently put his bride to death, he instead pardoned, purified, and preserved her. Because of his promise-keeping nature. What does that mean for you? Some of you in this room ought to feel hope rising in you. Yeah. When he could have permanently severed her, he used circumstances to sift her. This does not mean that there aren't immediate consequences to their actions or yours. It just means that those consequences don't have to be fatal. Israel's election remains. And if you were born again and filled with the Spirit, then your election should remain. It has everything to do with what you do next. The thing that God is after is the specific desire and the people that are called by His name, be that Israel or you formerly goat-worshipping Gentiles. He wants us to be ashamed of sin. He wants us to blush. He wants us to feel that guilt so that when he relieves that guilt, you love him as your husband. Amen. And you're loyal to him, like a bride should be loyal to her husband. He's always had the power to empower you beyond your sin. He always has. If you are laboring under the burden of sin, the very first thing that he ever said to mankind is, you are free 
to eat from any tree in the garden. Restriction only enters into this when you do things that you are not supposed to do. That's a good word. Burden only enters into this when you do things you're not supposed to do. First John says it so clearly. The commands of God are not burdensome. Amen. He wants to free us. Amen. And to be able to free us, you have to come squarely face to face, not with sin in general, not with the idea that all men have sinned and you're one of those men, but with your specific sin. Yeah. The people that he's addressing are just like you. They say all of the right things, but there are things going on inside of them that ought never go on inside of a bride. And he wants to fix it, but he's not going to fix it until they come to grips with the depravity that lives inside of them. There's no people in the world worse at this than the church. You've been taught to say the right things. You've been taught to stand up and worship him. Well, Judah was saying the right things, and they were standing up and worshiping him. In fact, they were in the middle of Josiah's reign while this very prophecy is happening. And yet they were more guilty than the ten northern tribes. See, you ought to have to wrestle with that. Mm -hmm. It's not my intention to bring condemnation on you. It's the pathway to actual freedom. Those of you with testimonies, I, I've loved the Lord all my life, you are a liar. Yeah. You haven't loved the Lord all of any one day. And when you can come to grips with that, then you're opening a door, a door of hope, where he can allure you as a good husband. And he can say, even though this dwells in you, if you trust me, I'll fix it. Come on. If you trust me, I'll empower you. If you will truly partner with me, I will empower your deeds in Amen. a way that show my divinity to the whole world. Amen. That is what is at stake in these things. Not believing that it can be done for Israel, well, that greatly hinders you. Not believing that it can be done in you, well, that, that decapitates you. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in this room, there has to be a faith that rises to both confront the wickedness in you and, somebody say and, and. and believe that he is powerful enough to do something through you that you cannot do on your own. Yes. Amen. Overcome your sin. It'll never be done by your discipline. It'll never be done by your restrictions. It can only be done by washing in his word and his spirit and understanding his character and he will lift you from mud and mire. And if you believe that that happened at salvation and hasn't needed to happen again, you're an idiot. You're not being honest with yourself and you don't have the right relationship with the word. It happens many times every day and the life of anybody who truly loves him. Because he's a God who wants to lift you out of it. And he requires that you come face to face with him and blush over the areas that you have not done this right. Mm -hmm. And that person receives pardon. Say, well, I got my pardon. I got saved. How many times do you need to be pardoned in your life? I doubt any of you have made it this week without needing a pardon. And I bet we could prove that to you if you were honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. What follows in this chapter is God's desires. He's expressing his desire to do this. And the chapter cuts off in a bad place. I mean, the chapter actually cuts off before it's finished. 
And we're going to do that anyway. We're going to end this at chapter 3 so that we can start next week with hope. Amen. Let's walk through the rest of chapter 3. Brother Linton, pick up in 19 and 21. Israel is our older brother in our example. I want you to notice the changes as you read it. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's a pause. In our courtroom setting, we've had these things ground in, ground in, the point made overwhelmingly clear. But notice verse 21 in the difference from every other verse we have read up to this point. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. The bride has recognized their own sinful, wretched state, and for the first time is beginning to weep over sin. This is the beginning of a holy life in any area that must change. It's also the backdrop to blessed are you who mourn. Yeah. 23 or 22. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. The Lord speaks again, starts responding to his people. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. Come on, man. Amen. Doesn't that move your heart? Yes. The Lord's very heart and desire is for us to understand, hey, yes, there have absolutely been times where faithlessness has consumed me. That I recognize that in myself. I see it. I see it clearly. I don't just recognize it. I acknowledge my guilt before the Lord. Because restoration is coming. He is holding out his hand to me and saying, Hey, I can cure you of that faithlessness. I can cure you of your lack of faith. I can cure you from having an attitude that says, I'm defeated. I'm nothing. Uh, no, you represent me. Amen. You represent the King of Kings. You represent the God of Israel. I will cure you of your faithlessness. I will cure you of your backsliding. You don't have to worry about this. You acknowledge it, and my power will flow through you. Listen to the revelation that the bride gets in verse 23. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and the mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Come on. This is the point in the bride where she is broken. This is the point in her brokenness where she receives a revelation that everything that I have been doing is a deception. Come on. I'm hopelessly Come on. trapped in this deception and I cannot get out. But surely you are the God and surely in you is the salvation. Come on. This is the revelation that they are trapped in deception. But that revelation brought hope. That hope arrived out of that brokenness and revelation because she knew that her husband is powerful enough to free her from that sin. Hallelujah. This is the beginning of victory Amen. in the bride's brokenness. It's an incredible thing that 
this passage where it says, surely the idolaters commotion on the hills? You have to understand that the average Jew was not physically committing adultery. But the terms in which she describes it is literally, surely the orgies on the hill. She's no longer concealing and covering her sin. She's actually describing it in the same graphic nature that God has gotten her attention with. See, people that are getting close to the Lord describe their sin worse than you think it would be. People that are far from the Lord make their sin sound better than it is. Now let's pick up in verse 24. We're going to finish this passage. I had planned to read you Ezekiel 37, but I'm not going to. I want to just finish this passage. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our father's labor, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Do you hear the revelation that she has been wasting her life? Remember, this is a people that are elect to be saved. This is a people in relationship with the Lord, but they realize that there is no point in their history when they've been worthy of the Lord's affection. Powerful things happen to Christians when you realize you've wasted most of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Let us lie down in our shame and let us let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. Like every other great awakening in history to the goodness of God, it begins with understanding the extent of your historic depravity. In that revelation, you begin to understand the need to call upon the faithfulness of Adonai as your husband. He is, and he always has been, the hope for every generation. Yeah. They are receiving the seeds of faith that are planted in the soil of their repentance. Mm. They are now not only in this courtroom imagery admitting their guilt. They're saying they've always been guilty and every generation before them has been guilty. And they're appealing to the goodness of Adonai. Come on. That is the heart that we all have to grab hold of. Amen. This is not works-based salvation. This is no matter what you do, it would never be good enough, but he will empower you beyond that salvation. We're going to begin to stand to our feet. In Ezekiel 37, which we are not going to read to you, but you should read. I want you to catch a couple statements. And all through this evening... I've worked really hard to make sure that you understood it was about Israel. For this, I want you to understand it is about Israel and it is also about you. It's about every one of you. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Not they might, they will. They will live in the land. Not they might, they will. They will live there forever. I will be their prince forever. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. I will be their God. And they will be my 
people. Amen. When you know that that is an unbreakable promise to them, you can start to apply the same nature of the same God to you. Amen. If you feel yourself guilty, and you should, if you don't, something's wrong with you. If you feel yourself guilty, understand your loving husband will never leave you there. He will be your prince. He will bring you into inheritance. He will be your God and you will be his people. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You're just in process. And the process requires you to blush over the things that you've done wrong. Come on. So that he can fix them. Amen. So that he can empower you beyond them. And he will do so. Yes. Father, we call upon your name tonight. We say that there is no God that is like you. We are drawn to you, mighty one, in spite of ourselves. And we come to you at the altar that is judgment because it's what we deserve. But Lord, instead of severing us, we're asking you to sift us. We're asking you to purify your bride. Lord, wash us. Clean us that we might be the kind of bride that you deserve. Lord, what you have promised to Israel, let it be true for us as well. We invite your precious spirit of holiness into this place. We ask you to wash us at a labor that we might actually enter into a holy place in a new way. Come and move in us. Come and move on us. We have great need of our husband. 